Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, 
Certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and we've got a nice little double feature for you all tonight. We're going to be spending a lot of time in creepy houses this evening, so make sure that you've got your popcorn and that you're ready to sit down for the long haul. You know, there's something particularly frightening about waking up from a nightmare in a dark house. The line between imagination and reality is a little blurry, and you sometimes don't even know where you are or what's going on for a little bit. Generally, these feelings subside as you realize that you're in a familiar place, that everything's fine, that you're safe. But what if that wasn't the case? What if, as you found yourself awake in your dark house after a nightmare, you saw something that increased your fear? Well, listeners, that's exactly what happens in tonight's first story, Nighttime Visitor, by Bikram Mann. After that, we'll be reading The Mansion by William Stewart. This story opens with Jones, an elderly retired detective, as he stares up at an old abandoned mansion in his hometown. This mansion was the site of Jones' first case, which launched his career and shaped his life. He's now back to solve a new case, and unbeknownst to him, close the circle on the series of events that started over 50 years before. I'd like to mention that both of tonight's stories are being featured thanks to Velux Books, who have kindly allowed us to use them for Horror Hill. I encourage you to check out veluxbooks.com, that's V-E-L-O-X-B-O-O-K-S.com, and browse their extensive collection of independent short horror. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today and get instant access. Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. And now, from author Bikram Mann, I give you Nighttime Visitor. I woke up shivering. A thick layer of sweat coated my body like an oily second skin, stretching over muscles tighter than a clenched fist. The memory of the nightmare that had reduced me to this state had already slipped from my grasp. All I could remember were odd silhouettes flitting about in the darkness. It must have been horrifying, though, or else my heart wouldn't be beating against my chest with such tremendous force. The ceiling fan whirled slowly above me, letting out the odd creak as it struggled to cool my body down. Beyond time I fixed that thing, I thought as I sucked in a couple of deep breaths to calm my heartbeat before turning my neck sideways to work out the tension knots in my shoulders. 
Raindrops drummed against the glass window on the wall to my right. I checked my phone. 1.45 a.m. It was drizzling like it had been all throughout the day, and the angry, swollen clouds that had blotted out the sun and tarnished the sky mackerel gray were still refusing to release the pressure pent up inside them. The shit weather had forced me to stay home, even made me cancel my scheduled visit to the grocery store. However, the torrential rain I feared just never came. I swung my legs and rolled out of bed, furiously blinking as my vision shrank behind what looked like a swarm of glittering diamonds. The fact that a sudden movement was all it took to make me see stars was but a humiliating reminder of my advancing age. Rolling my shoulders, I stepped towards the window. A fresh scent of moist wood and wet mud wafted towards me through the gaps in the window frame. The sky was pitch black. No fishhook moon, no stars, no flashing lights of passing aircrafts. Nothing. Just dark clouds that grumbled and wept at the earth. My eyes drifted downwards towards the dark red brick wall and the painted sash window of my son's bedroom, down to the floor-to-ceiling glass of the living room, then onto the cobblestone pathway that led to the small iron gate at the edge of the property. A solitary street lamp shed a wash of yellow light at the wet metal of the gate, making it gleam. A hooded figure stood next to it. My heart leapt. He was standing with his back towards me, facing the gate. He was inside the property. Motionless, head bowed, he seemed to stare at the gate as water flowed down the folds of his coat, dripping onto the ground below. I felt a sudden tightening in my chest. What was he doing here? Was he lost? In need of help? A neglected Alzheimer's patient? Didn't look like it. Didn't feel like it. I couldn't see him, but something about him, his straight posture, his broad shoulders, made me think he wasn't elderly. What else? Was he a home invader? Then why was he just standing there? The lack of active malice in his presence made me all the more unnerved. There was a certain wrongness about this man that I just couldn't put my finger on. I deliberated, calling the cops, to tell them what exactly. I shook my head. No, there was no need to escalate things to such an extent. I would look really foolish if this all turned out to be a misunderstanding. Yeah, better to try and talk to this man. After all, if at any point I felt like I was in danger, I could always just run back, slam the door shut, and call the police like I'd been intending to all along. Of course, no need to be scared. The decision filled me with a shaky confidence that made my scalp tingle. I turned around, grabbed my phone off the bed, and marched out of the room, my breath trembling with nervous excitement. The rain sounded louder in the hallway outside my bedroom as it pattered on the skylight. Moonlight would usually filter in through the broad glass panel adorning the sloping section of the cement roof. But not tonight, though. 
The water splashed and spilled on the dark, almost opaque glass. I shot a glance at my son's room. The door was open, heavy blue curtains pulled to the side. He was sound asleep on his large bed, his body as oddly contorted as it usually gets when he's sleeping. I moved to the stairwell. Grabbing the polished handrail, I began my descent, wincing as the steps bent and creaked under my weight. Why was I so nervous? It was almost as if I was afraid of the man outside knowing that I was approaching him. It was ridiculous. I was going out to try to talk to him anyway, wasn't I? So why wouldn't I want him to notice me? Besides, there's no way he could possibly hear me from all the way out there, right? A flash of lightning lit up the stairwell, threw my shadow on the wall in front of me, a shadow that twitched. I gasped, swooned at the sudden fright. My fingers tightened around the wooden handrail as I cursed myself for being so jumpy. Thunder rumbled in the distance as I continued climbing down the stairs, hastening at the last three steps. Ahead of me was the front door, two long windows fixed to its sides. Thin white curtains were draped over the windows, obscuring the view outside. I considered switching the lights on, but then decided against it. Something about the lights splashing out of the windows and alerting the man outside that I was here scared me. I rushed forward, calves tense, head locked straight, eyes fixed on the door. Shadows pooled around the furniture in the living room to my left, but I dared not risk a peek. The prospect of seeing something that shouldn't be there was too frightening to consider. I jolted to a halt about a hair's breadth away from the door, almost crashing into it. That would have hurt, and made a lot of noise. Noise that the man outside would... Stop that. I gently rested my head against the door, felt the cool wood on my skin. My heart was racing in my chest. When was the last time I had been this terrified? All because of a strange man in a black coat standing with his back to the house? I felt my bones shiver as the image of that man, standing in the rain, flashed through my head. Was he still there? All I had to do was open the door and I'd know. I had been so full of confidence back up in my room, but now that I was actually here, with just a thin wooden door between the two of us, all courage had fled from my body. The thought of going closer to him filled my heart with an irrational dread. Why was I doing this at all? What was the point in trying to talk to him? He wasn't exactly a threat, right? He was just standing there, minding his own business. On my property. I balled my hand up into a fist, brought it up to my mouth, bit the knuckles. Then, exhaled. Right. He was on my property, but he wasn't doing anything, was he? What was the point in messing with him? It seemed far more reasonable to forget about all this and go back to bed. Whatever it was, I was sure it would be over in the morning. Things that went bump in the night dissipated like the fog under the warm rays of the sun, didn't they? Fuck. I couldn't. 
I just couldn't. I had to at least see whether he was still there or not, or else the thought would keep niggling at the back of my mind like a pebble stuck in a shoe. Tentatively, I reached for the white curtain drawn over the window to my left. I pulled it aside, craned my neck, and looked outside. The glass was speckled with raindrops, and it was dark out in the lawn, with the only source of light being the street lamp. But it was enough. He wasn't there anymore. Relief flooded through my body, warming it up. I forced myself to chuckle. How foolish had I been to be so scared of phantoms in the dark? It was like I was eight years old again, reduced to whimpers by the thought of something hiding under the bed, scratching the wooden slats with its long fingernails. <laughs> Ridiculous. Then, almost as if to reassert my dominance as the master of the house, I unlocked the door, pulled it open, and he was there, right at the threshold of the door, mere inches from my face. His head was bowed like he was looking at his boots. Tangles of matted, seaweed-like hair burst out of the hood of his coat and fell down the sides of his face, a face that was old, wrinkled, with numerous folds of skin drooping and festooning his jowls. He was still, breathless, smelled like the dead things that rot at the bottom of the sea. I slammed the door shut, made sure every lock in the damn thing was in place. My heart pounded in my chest, sending blood pumping through my body. My cheeks burned with fear as a knot swelled up in my throat. Alarm bells were ringing deafeningly loud in my head, an animalistic instinct that was warning me that my very survival was at stake. What the fuck? This was too much. I had to call the cops. My hands shook as I tried to unlock my phone. My fingers, oily with sweat, slipped on the screen. After a couple of tense seconds, it flared to life. I punched the numbers in and waited for the call to connect, risked another peek outside through the window. I couldn't see him from that angle. There wasn't enough light and he had been standing too close to the door. Too fucking close. A shudder ran through me. What the fuck was he even doing? Drip, drip, drip. I strained my ears. That sound, it was coming from somewhere close to me. Dripping water, louder and closer than what I'd been hearing until then. Droplets dripping on the floor. Wooden floor. Tears of horror and helplessness pricked my eyes. He was inside the house. Taking a measured step back, I turned my neck. Slowly, ever so slowly, not wanting to materialize my fear by looking at it. My blood froze as my eyes drifted over the unlit space to my left. I didn't even have to use my phone's flashlight. The living room was illuminated by enough traces of moonlight to outline the silhouette of the man standing behind the hand-carved sofa. I stumbled, hit my back against the wall. Drip, drip, drip. I had heard about people becoming paralyzed after coming face to face with a predator in the forest. 
Never quite understood how or why that happened until that moment. An intense primal terror washed over me, seeped into my very bones. I wanted to run, to shout, but my body just wouldn't obey my desperate commands. For a couple of unimaginably long moments, I stood rooted to the spot, just staring at the black silhouette of the man. And then there was a sharp intake of breath. It was hoarse, raspy, like it was pulled through a wet plastic sheet jammed into a tight throat before being stuffed into lungs full of holes. My body shivered, my knees turning so weak I was afraid I'd collapse right there. But the spell was broken. I could move again, and move I did. I bolted toward the stairs, my bare feet thudding on the hardwood floor. I could hear him following me, squishing of wet shoes, splashing of water on the floor, rustling of the moisture-laden coat. I jumped two steps at a time, doing my hardest to increase the distance between us. The man's shadow loomed large on the wall, letting me know that I wasn't quite succeeding. Three steps away from the landing on the first floor, I faltered. My foot, instead of finding hard wood, sank into darkness, and I fell face first, my skull making a sickening crack as it bounced on the handrail before my flailing hands inadvertently and thankfully cushioned it down to the floor. Needles of sharp pain stabbed my head, only to be overwhelmed by the burning agony in my twisted right foot. The man's footsteps boomed like gunshots on the stairs behind me. I bit my cheek and reached for the vertical iron bars supporting the handrail. My hands wrapped tight around the cold metal as I began pulling myself up. The movement intensified the pain in my leg, causing tears to stream down my face. Yet, with gritted teeth and strained arm muscles, I kept on heaving myself up. My stomach turned in knots in anticipation. Any second, I was going to feel cold and clammy hands on my injured leg. Any second, I was going to be yanked back into the darkness. How terrified would my son be by my screams? The poor boy wasn't even aware of what was inside the house. I crawled onto the landing, sucking in deep breaths as I leaned against the banister. The footsteps behind me abruptly ended. Did he stop? The rank stench that clung to his body like grease seemed to dissipate. I pushed myself up on my elbows, shifted my body to scan the stairwell. It was empty, like he had never even been there. I squeezed my eyes shut and groaned in frustration. Fuck, where was he now? I couldn't see him anywhere. Not wanting to waste this momentary lull and the mind-numbing terror, I took the support of the banister and hoisted myself up on my feet gnashing my teeth to fight through the pain. I shifted my whole weight onto my good leg and began hobbling towards my room. A flash of lightning sliced through the darkness. I saw it, for the briefest of seconds, out of the corner of my eye. He was there, outside the house, 
lying face down on the skylight. The footsteps started up again. The smell returned, thicker than ever, clogging my nostrils like a rotting corpse. How? How could he be in two places at once? I darted towards my bedroom, unmindful of the pain making my entire body throb, and slammed the door shut behind me, knowing that the act was pretty much useless. He could appear inside my room whenever he wished it, tear me apart, limb from limb. Sweat erupted out of my pores. It was hopeless, utterly hopeless. I bawled like a baby, my chest quaking with the sobs. A faint voice out in the hallway wrenched me out of my self-pity. Dad? The footsteps of the man continued, getting closer and closer. Dad, are you okay? No, 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 no. Dad, where are you? Get back inside. The footsteps were right outside my room now. Hey, what are you doing up so late at night? That's not me. That's not me. The footsteps picked up speed, drifted away from my room. My son let out a sharp gasp. My heart sank in my chest. Then, the screams. Loud and shrill, full of fear, confusion, and pain. Buried beneath them, the vile sounds of breaking bones and blood spurting out of torn vessels. My mind was a mess. Guilt, fear, shame warred endlessly. I should have done something, rushed out of the room to try and protect my son. But I couldn't. Because, above all else, there was relief in my heart. Relief that he chose my son, and not me. You've been listening to Nighttime Visitor by Bikram Mann. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, to close out our evening, from author William Stewart, I give you The Mansion. Jones stared at the hulking structure for a long time before shutting off his engine. Sensing that he was heading straight into a trap, he checked once more that his pistol was loaded, then climbed out of the car. Tonight, he would get to the bottom of this, would finally find the answers his clients sought. And although he hadn't completely given up hope for a happy ending, things were not looking good. At least, maybe, he could bring the offender to justice. He grabbed his cane and began the painful climb up the hill to the porch. He had been here before, long ago. He remembered these steps. Young, cocksure, barely out of junior high school, thinking he was a combination of Sherlock Holmes and Batman, only better than both because he actually existed and could solve real crimes. How long had it been? Forty years? Fifty? It didn't seem that long, but as he cast his memory back, it could have even been longer. The Davenport Mansion had been abandoned then, too, and even then, these damned steps were treacherous. Jones knew all about the house, of course. Built in 1878, the mansion and its grounds had been the home of Elias Davenport and his wife Mary. Elias had been an early venture capitalist and Mary was a community leader and philanthropist. Situated on sprawling, hilly acreage, the mansion had housed the Davenport family for decades. In 1951, Elias Davenport IV, the great-grandson of Elias and heir to the estate, quite suddenly moved his family and primary offices to California to explore business ventures in warmer climes, never to return. Although abandoned for more than 50 years, the mansion's absentee owners seemed to have no plans for the old place. Occasionally, a news story would pop up discussing ideas for either restoration or demolition, or that the Park Service and historical societies were in talks with the Davenport family to do something with the property. But nothing ever came of it. While people talked, the mansion sat, empty and moldering, holding its silent counsel with none but the wildlife that scurried through its glassless panes and wandered its once grand halls. Jones leaned on his cane as he reached the threshold. Damn arthritis. Damn football. Damn... getting old. In his day, he'd really been something. All-star athlete, straight-A student, forensic phenom. Now, he felt everything. Every hit, every tackle, every takedown his teenage body had shaken off so easily had made its way back around to settle deep into his knees and lower back. All together, all at once, and seemingly overnight they came, and now most everything he did hurt. Eventually, every check comes due. 
He considered the massive double doors standing wide open to greet him and wondered just how much of his past sought atonement. Because the Davenport mansion also happened to be where Jones had cracked his first case, had busted his first bad guy so long ago. Now, more than 50 years later, and following a case that couldn't possibly be related, he stood staring into the empty chasm of a foyer and wishing he had brought a bigger gun, and maybe a SWAT team. He glanced back down the hill at his car and thought about just heading back down there. But, of course, he couldn't. Even if his conscience could allow such a thing, he knew that he was being watched and that any move other than forward would not be tolerated. He sighed, lifted his cane, and wrapped it on the door jam. Tap, tap, tap. Hello? Is anybody home? 1967. Tap, tap, tap. Hello? Is anybody home? The teenagers cowering under the dining room table stopped breathing altogether. They'd been caught. They held each other in the dim light and hoped that the man in the mask would go away. The click of a pistol hammer told them that this was not going to be the case. They slowly moved out into the light. It had been the most normal of dares. Go to the Davenport mansion and bring back a souvenir. It was a Halloween tradition at this point. The high school kids used the Davenport lands as an out-of-the-way place to drink and mess around where police and parents were unlikely to go. The house was set back far enough from the highway, and if you parked behind it, you were invisible. There was no security of any kind, so for the past several years, the grand structure had served as the clubhouse of sorts for all the local kids who could catch a ride out there but they also liked to use it to tease the incoming freshmen. On Halloween, for example, the Davenport compound was completely off-limits so that the upperclassmen could haze the incoming fish with spooky dares. After telling the chosen kid about all the ghosts and monsters that lived in the house, a senior would drive him out and drop him off and force him to go inside and grab something to prove that he was brave enough. Unbeknownst to the hapless boy, the senior girls said the same thing to one of their incoming freshmen and sent her in at the same time. The idea was that the two would stumble on one another during the dare and scare each other out of their wits. What this year's seniors had not counted on was the presence of a third person in the mansion this Halloween night. Neville Rogers had been waiting for the girl to show up. The seniors liked to believe that they had a monopoly on dirty tricks, but the freshman Halloween prank had been going on for so long that Neville, along with everybody else, had known about it since fifth grade. When the guys had dropped him off earlier, he'd casually snuck in through the back door, snatched a small butter knife engraved with a D, and stuck it in his pocket. He then moved from room to room, looking for Stephanie North. He knew from years of lore that he was expected to scare her if he saw her first, but Neville had other plans. First, he didn't like to be scared and didn't find it funny. Second, he had a huge crush on Stephanie and was not going to do anything to cause her any fear or distress. 
He hoped he'd find her and come out of the dark like a friendly helping hand, and the two could wander off somewhere and chat while they waited for their rides to pick them up. He looked in several of the rooms and was thinking about going upstairs when a hand fell on his shoulder. A startled scream leapt out of him and he turned to look into the surprised and somewhat amused eyes of Stephanie. His heart pounded in his chest, both from fear and embarrassment, and somehow he couldn't help but laugh. Stephanie began to chuckle as well, and their laughter echoed off the wooden floor and up into the lofted ceilings of the mansion. Oh man, you got me, he said finally as he began to calm down. I'm so sorry, I really didn't mean to. I just saw you and there was no good way to let you know I was here without scaring you. I promise, I tried to be gentle. Neville's scare had loosened what would have normally been tight lips. He was often tongue-tied around girls and absolutely flummoxed around Stephanie. The year before, they had been paired up as lab partners, and Neville had to pretend that he had laryngitis just to make it through the class. Stephanie was nice about it, though, and even brought him some cough drops the next day. Now, they stood facing each other by the light of the full moon cascading through the massive picture windows at the front of the house. Pretty spooky place, huh? Neville said, gesturing around the room. It is, Stephanie replied, but it's also kind of neat. I mean, they left all their stuff. Yeah, I wonder what happened to them. Like, why would they just leave it all behind? I don't know. I guess they were rich enough to buy new things when they got to where they went. But still, all these paintings and antiques? You'd think they'd at least pack it up or donate it to a museum or something. The two of them walked around looking at the paintings and artifacts on the walls and shelves. Here, a tarnished suit of armor. There, a moldering stuffed grizzly bear, its towering form casting shadows on the moonlit floor. There were tapestries and bookshelves and chandeliers and cigarette tins and all manner of bric-a-brac scattered about. The Davenport Mansion was a strange window into the lives of the ultra-wealthy from twenty years before and despite it being a hangout for teenagers for years, it was largely undisturbed. In nearly two decades of neglect, only a few of the hundreds of windows had been broken. The furniture was still covered in sheets, in fact, and while it was known that many a frisky couple had fumbled about in the numerous rooms of the mansion, they had, for the most part, treated it with respect. Neville and Stephanie wandered around aimlessly, looking at this and that. Stephanie kept picking things up and examining them, while Neville slowly, then very quickly, became aware that he was alone at night with the girl of his dreams, and that she wasn't laughing at him or running away. As she commented on something or other, he just watched her. She was so interested in this stuff, and that made her just so much more interesting to him. He adored her and longed to be her boyfriend. He smiled and nodded with each of her new discoveries, but couldn't have told you what she was showing him. His mind had gone into battle with his heart as he tried to muster the courage to ask her out on a date. This idea was probably futile because he didn't have a car and she probably had a boyfriend and he was a dork and she was pretty popular and of course he didn't have a car because he was only 14 and 
Her expectations couldn't be that high because she was also just 14, and there was no reason why the two of them couldn't just meet somewhere for a slice of pizza or ice cream or something, and he would say witty things and she would smile and laugh, and besides, he couldn't be that bad because, after all, he had, so far, faced the challenge of the Davenport Mansion on Halloween and during a full moon, no less. But then, so had she, which meant she probably wasn't easily impressed, and with all her talent, charisma, and prettiness, she deserved someone that could drive her around and sweep her off her feet, and now she was saying something and he wasn't listening. Upstairs? Um, huh? She laughed and said, I said, you want to see what's upstairs? Uh, yeah, sure. He shrugged, trying to seem casual despite the flock of butterflies that had invaded his stomach. I mean, if you want to. She took him by the hand and led him to the staircase. There's a third floor and an attic too, even a basement. Imagine all the neat things that might be up there. Neville had heard stories about when kids went upstairs in this house, and he feared the high school expectations. The make-out room, spin the bottle, and whatever other conceits the kids had come up with to encourage embarrassing encounters. Of course, he wanted to kiss Stephanie North, but he wanted it to be sweet. He'd never kissed a girl before, and besides, what was he even thinking? There wasn't going to be any kissing. She was just interested in the old Davenport place and all the junk the family had left behind. The butterflies in his stomach swarmed anew as he let himself be led up the curving stairwell to the second floor. It was darker up here, but not terribly so. The moon shone brightly enough so that they could explore the rooms on one side of the hallway. Up here was different. Nearly all the furniture was covered in white sheets. It gave an eerie feeling in the glow of the moonlight, like ghosts in a cartoon. Stephanie gripped his hand tighter as they moved along. Here was a pile of old toys in a room with pinstriped wallpaper. Here was a lavatory with monogrammed hand towels hanging from a bar. Everything was placed just so and left in such a way that you could expect the owners to come home at any moment. Maybe that was the reason that the kids although not shy about trespassing or breaking and entering, were not prone to vandalism. It almost felt like you were being watched. They entered a large chamber at the end of the hall, and both of them let out a sigh. A huge octagonal window provided a panoramic view of the pastures and the forests and even the mountains beyond. It was breathtaking. Hand in hand, they walked forward, taking in the moonlit vista. Beneath the window was a glass door, and beyond that, a patio surrounded by an intricate wrought iron railing. Ancient furniture sat crumbling, victims of time and the elements. For a moment, Neville imagined himself lord of this house, the years of neglect washed away, with Stephanie at his side, waking up to this view and her smile, every day for the rest of his life. She squeezed his hand and let him know that she felt the same. Neville wanted to pull her to him, promise her everything, and then seal it with a kiss. 
The butterflies swarmed angrily, and he pushed them down with a thought. Her hand in his. It was now or never. He squeezed and turned toward her and... Slam! Now. Jones did the best he could to soften his footfalls on the old wooden floor, but it was no use. Between the creaking of the beams and the tapping of his cane, he may as well have been sounding a siren. The place was different now. Every square inch of wall space was covered in decades' worth of graffiti. All of the windows had been broken out, and shattered glass covered the floor in every direction. Jones thought back to his high school days, when the mansion was treated as something like a clubhouse. If asked, none of the kids could have really explained why, but they were all in agreement that the place, and its contents, should be respected. As he looked at the utter and complete destruction of everything around him, he shook his head in sorrow. The younger generations had not held it in the same regard. The front foyer opened into a great hall with a drawing room off to the left. Jones knew his quarry was not in the drawing room. He was about 99% sure he'd find his man in either the attic or the basement, because that's where they always were. He shined his light into the drawing room anyway. There was a thick coat of dust on everything except for a newer-looking office chair. The floor around the chair had a mass of footprints around it, and there were pieces of duct tape lying about. Jones turned the dial on his torch, and it shone with an ultraviolet glow. The chair and the lamp around it lit up brightly as the dried blood glowed under his lamp. He swept the light around and followed the glowing droplets out of the room and across the main hall, where they ended at the curved staircase. Jones stared up into the dark. Why was he here? He'd been retired for years, had sold the agency to his partner. The only things filling his time these days were books, hobbies, and occasional travel, although even that was becoming less frequent since the arthritis set in. The call from his former partner asking for help with a strange case, an elderly man abducted from a nursing home, and a bizarre set of clues nobody could understand. A cipher in the man's Bible and strange symbols written on a stationary pad had confounded the other investigators. Jones, however, had solved it in a matter of hours. It was a set of coordinates, which was the location of the Davenport Mansion, and the logging credentials for a messaging service that instructed Jones himself to come to the house that very night and to come alone, or the old man would never be seen again. The stairs led up into a hallway with bedrooms on either side. He swept his light back over the blood trail across the floor. This was intentional. The chair and the tape and the blood. It was done to lead him up the stairs and into whatever trap had been laid out for him. He sighed deeply and began the painful climb. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. 
You can do this when you Angie that. 1967. Neville and Stephanie jumped at the sound. What was that? She whispered. I don't know, he whispered back. They now stood in a fearful embrace, whispering into each other's ears. Maybe it's the guys trying to scare us. Or the junior girls, Stephanie whispered back. He felt her trembling in his arms, and his own heart was pounding as well. Whoever, or whatever, made the sound had given them both an awful scare. Should we investigate? She asked finally. It's just other kids, Neville reasoned. It's a full moon on Halloween. We're surely not the only ones to get challenged. Good point, she said, relaxing. She released him and went to one of the windows to look out. I wonder who it is. He followed her and scanned the grounds. Sure enough, the tail end of a car was visible down below. Eh, no telling, he shrugged, feeling the magic of the evening dissipating with each passing second. You want to try and scare them? She smiled, turning away from the window. He shrugged again. No, he did not want to try and scare them. He wanted whoever it was to go away and mind their own business and leave him and Stephanie to theirs. Sure. They moved out of the room and back up the hall the way they had come. At the top of the landing, Stephanie crouched and looked to see if anyone was below. It's clear, she whispered, and they began to creep down the stairs. Neville moved slowly not intentionally trying to make noise, but his heart was not in this game, so he wasn't as stealthy as he could have been. Get low! Someone could see you! Stephanie whispered, and Neville crouched. Fine, he'd play along, if only to humor her. Then, footsteps down below. They froze. Under the staircase at the back of the house, the click and clack of a man's shoes or boots, not sneakers like a kid would wear, heavy, uneven footfalls, as if the man was limping or carrying something heavy. Then a slam, like a door was being kicked open. The footsteps continued, but became faint as the mystery man continued on the other side of the door. Who do you think it is? Stephanie asked her face a mixture of curiosity and concern in the dusty darkness. We should get out of here. We're trespassing, Neville whispered back. Stephanie nodded, and they moved quickly down the stairs and across the main hall to the front door. Neville grabbed the large brass handle and pulled it, but it didn't turn. Locked, he said. The front door of the mansion had always been locked, the Davenports had closed the house up tight when they'd left, and the massive wooden door with its intricate locking mechanism had held fast all these years. There was a rumor that a key to the front door was hidden somewhere in the house, but so far, such an artifact had not been found. The kids always came through a servant's entrance at the back that had either been left unlocked or had been jimmied or picked years before. Once that door was breached, other doors had been unlocked from the inside, but not this one. Another slam and a grumbled curse came from the back of the house. Definitely an adult. 
The teenagers dashed into the room nearest the front door. They huddled in the darkness. Whoever was here, he was not one of them. Who do you think it is? Stephanie asked again, as quietly as she could. I don't know, Neville answered. But if it's a grown-up, it can't be good. Stephanie nodded her agreement. But he's between us and the way out. We're trapped. They sat silently for a few minutes before they heard another slam and the footsteps echoing somewhere in the house. Then it was quiet again. If we can find out where he's coming and going from, maybe we can go around him, said Neville. Come on, stick to the shadows and be ready to run or hide if he sees you. He grabbed her by the hand and pulled her out of the room. Together they moved, as quietly as they could, to the doorway at the back of the great hall. Neville poked his head around the corner. The coast is clear. Let's go. They turned into the hallway and made a break for it. Stephanie let go of his hand as they ran as fast as they could through the various twists and turns toward the kitchen where they'd come in. It was dark, but the moonlight through the windows illuminated everything perfectly. They were almost there. One final corner and... In the kitchen stood a monster. Large black bug eyes peered at them and the tentacles hanging from its jaws twitched. It made some kind of sound and dropped whatever it had been holding. Neville and Stephanie both screamed as they tried to turn around and run. Stephanie slipped and slid like a baseball player between the thing's legs, but poor Neville collided smack into it before turning and running the other way. The monster grunted and growled in confusion, then grasped at Neville, trying to catch the terrified child. Stephanie, for her part, completely forgot to keep running out the door and turned to see the monster chase Neville back through the darkened hallways. She looked around for anything she might use as a weapon, but the cutlery had long ago been pilfered by souvenir hunters. She settled on a broomstick and followed the others back into the labyrinthine rooms. Neville screamed as the monster chased him through the hallways. His panic was so complete he could barely breathe as he turned this corner and then that one, spinning on his heels and going the other direction as the monster popped out of a doorway and tried to grab him. He tripped over his feet and stumbled forward, almost colliding with Stephanie when she appeared out of another doorway and swung the broomstick at the beast. The monster's head spun around on its shoulders and it let out a bellowing howl. Neville stood frozen to the spot and watched in horror as the beast reached up with both hands and turned its head back around the right way. Stephanie grabbed him and the pair ran away from the thing. They turned into the dining room and then ducked under the massive table that was covered in heavy sheets that hung to the floor. Through a small hole in the sheet, Neville watched as the monster entered the room. As it stood in the doorway, it adjusted its head again, and Neville could see that it wasn't a monster, but a man wearing some kind of mask. The masked man reached into the pocket of his coat and pulled out a pistol. Jones stashed his bicycle and climbed the stone steps of the Davenport mansion, taking them two at a time. Now, he stood in front of the double doors that had been locked tight for nearly two decades. 
He slipped his rucksack from his shoulders and retrieved his lockpicking kit. If he was right, and he was pretty darn sure that he was, then he was about to be a hero. It had all started with a conversation he'd overheard at the soda shop. He and a friend were having a pop after school the previous Thursday when a man at the table next to theirs began talking about some fake bills being passed around town. Uh, fives and tens, nothing too large. I guess to keep people from getting suspicious. But Sam at the bank says there's been a bunch of fake bills coming through with the nightly deposits. Jones was intrigued. A counterfeiter in their little town? That was a felony. A real, genuine crime. He had been obsessed with detective work since reading his first Batman and Robin comic book when he was little. Batman had studied Sherlock Holmes, and so had Jones. Hardy Boy's mystery books lined the shelves in his bedroom. It was his life's goal to become a great crime-solving detective like his heroes. The only problem was that, in their little town, nobody even locked their doors at night. There was never any crime, not even small ones. So, there was definitely nothing for a world-class detective to do. But here it was. A real, honest-to-God crime for him to solve. The first step was to acquire one of the fake bills, which was a lot harder than he'd imagined. Once the bank received them in their deposits, they notified the vendors and the police and on and on up to the Secret Service, which was terribly exciting. All the funny money was in a special locker at the police station. Anytime he asked anyone about it, they pretended not to know. In the end, it took pestering, prodding, cajoling, and using every bit of goodwill he'd gained through the years in Boy Scouts, Citizens Brigade, and volunteering at the church before someone, Jones would never say who, finally, quietly, slipped him a five spot. From there, he was in forensic bliss. He compared the note to a real bill and noted the differences. Subtle, but obvious if one were looking. Little blurs in the pen strokes, a little too crisp while also being wrinkled, as if someone had taken the new bill and wadded it up a few times to make it seem older. In all, however, it was a pretty good copy. Jones scratched his head. Something was missing. It was a good copy, but not great. Not quite good enough because the bank had pulled several of the fake bills. They weren't passing them back into circulation. A decent counterfeiter would want the bills to slip right in with the real ones, to not be noticed. And why play with such small denominations? If you were going to risk that much prison, wouldn't you go for bigger gains? Unless... Jones turned it over and over in his head. He ran down a dozen obvious scenarios and thought of half a dozen more. The conclusion he finally settled on was that, whoever this guy was, he was not a good counterfeiter. Not yet, anyway. But he was working through drafts. This batch was discovered immediately. The next one took a little longer and a few bills made it through. And so on and so on. He was finding the right mix of chemicals and calibrating his machine, and that was it. He was trying to perfect his product by batches. More importantly, he was running a printing press. 
so all Jones had to do was find the press and he'd find the bad guy. So where would someone be able to set up a machine as large and noisy as a printing press and not be disturbed? One more turn and the mechanism released and the bolt slid open. Jones shoved the kit back into his pack and quietly entered the old mansion. The huge doors swung open, letting in a gust of wind from outside that moved the various sheets and dust balls, making the mansion come alive. Jones crept to the side, trying to stay in the shadows. He was listening for the mechanical rumble of a press or the diesel generator that might be running it, but instead he heard a man's muffled voice shouting angry commands. Suddenly, Jones wasn't so sure what to do. For all his superhero fantasies, he was still only 14 and unarmed in a criminal's hideout. He paused in the darkness and tried to listen to what was being said in the other room. Now. Jones shuddered as he passed through the decrepit mansion. He remembered the fear he had felt upon entering this place the first time. Not that it was haunted, as many of his schoolmates had believed, but because there had been real danger here. And now, there was real danger again. Reaching the top of the stairs, he looked up and down the long corridors. There was light coming from under the door at the end of the hall. Jones put his hand on the grip of the revolver in his pocket and limped toward the light. 1967. Neville and Stephanie crawled out from under the table and stood, trembling. The masked man held a lantern in one hand and a pistol in the other. He said nothing for a long time as he stared at them through the bug-eyed lenses. Neville's heart was racing, tears pouring down his face. He'd never had a gun pointed at him before, but now... Stephanie looked at the floor. Please. Shut up! The man shouted, his voice muffled behind his mask. Just shut up! I have to think. He motioned them against the wall and kept the gun pointed at them. He did not ask them any questions, didn't say anything at all. He just stared through his strange bug eyes. Neville knew what he was thinking. This man was some kind of criminal, and he was using the abandoned mansion as a hideout. He and Stephanie had disturbed him in planning his crime, and now he'd have to get rid of them to keep from getting caught. The gravity of the situation hit Neville like a punch. This man was going to kill him. He thought of his parents, of his friends from school. Would they ever know what happened? Would they ever find his body? How badly would it hurt being shot? Would it be fast, or would the masked man take his time? His heart pounded in his chest, and he found it difficult to breathe. The longer the man stared, the more terrified Neville became. His trembling turned to shudders, turned to racking, heaving sobs. He was unable to contain himself or hide his fear. The masked man still said nothing at all. Jones decided this was too much. He was in over his head. The best thing to do would be to go back down the hill and simply call the police. 
He was a little disappointed, but this was for the best. He began to sneak back through the shadows when he heard a voice from the next room scream, Shut up! followed by what sounded like a crying child. Jones froze. Someone was in danger, and from the sound of it, feared for their life. He didn't have time to go to the police now. This was up to him. He would have to do the best he could. He cast about, searching for anything he could use as a weapon. Fortunately, there was a lot to choose from. It didn't take him long to find the perfect thing, a heavy, leaden candlestick holder. Weapon in hand, he crept back toward the dining room and listened. Neville was fully crying now, an uncontrolled, hyperventilating sob. Stephanie, her eyes cast to the floor, kept her composure, but tears ran down her face as well. She had come to the same conclusion as Neville and was quietly waiting for the inevitable. The masked man seemed nervous as he paced about. No doubt he had chosen this place so he could operate unseen, but now he had to make a desperate decision. The children cowered under the barrel of his forty-five. Jones crept down the long hall, coming into the dining room from the rear. Now he could see what was going on. There was a man in some kind of gas mask holding a gun on two kids from his school. They were up against the wall and crying. The man was pacing back and forth, obviously agitated. Jones came to the same conclusion that Neville and Stephanie had already made. Like it or not, these kids were about to be eliminated. Jones shuddered to his core. He was in the lair of a killer. Something had to be done, and he was the only one who could. The man continued to pace, never taking his gun nor his bug eyes off the teens. Fortunately for Jones, the man's hearing and vision were diminished by the mask he wore. Jones shouldered the candlestick like a baseball bat and came up behind the man. Stephanie saw him emerge from the dark and looked up quickly, her eyes wide. The man saw this and began to turn when Jones brought the candlestick around and struck him full across the side of his head. The man stumbled, stunned as Jones swung again. This time, though, he missed, and the man caught the candlestick and yanked it out of his hands. The man still had no peripheral vision in the mask, however, and in a second, Stephanie had retrieved her broomstick and was smashing the hand that held the pistol. The man bellowed in pain and frustration as Jones hopped onto the table and kicked him hard under the chin. The man flailed and dropped the candlestick, and Stephanie traded up, bringing the heft of the heavy lead down onto the man's hand, finally knocking the gun from his grip. Jones dove for the firearm and then scrambled for distance. When the man saw that the teenager held the gun on him now, he sunk to his knees and put his hands up. Stephanie came to stand behind Jones and then called out for Neville, but Neville was gone. As soon as Jones had appeared and Neville saw the man was distracted, he had hopped to his feet and run out of the dining room. Upon seeing the front doors open to the night, 
he ran as fast as he could out of the house, down the steps, and all the way back into town, never even thinking of looking back. Now, every joint screamed as Jones walked to the door and cautiously pushed it open. A voice called from inside the room. Come on now, I didn't bring you all this way to shoot you through some lousy door. The room was lit by several hissing propane lanterns. Their incredibly bright light causing momentary disorientation, Jones could not see much past the end of his nose. He shielded his eyes as he stepped tentatively into the chamber. He passed the first couple of lanterns and was able to see a little better, and what he saw gave him pause. A very old man, his face bloody, beaten, and bruised, sat slumped in a wheelchair. Someone stood next to him, holding a gun to his head. Jones couldn't make out the stranger in the dark, but the shadow was tall and thin. The old man moaned quietly in his chair. The stranger knocked him in the head with the barrel of his gun and told him to shut up. Jones had no clue what was going on. You remember this place, Mr. Jones? The stranger asked from his place among the shadows. Behind him were the remains of a huge octagonal window frame, its glass panes long gone. Jones glanced around the room. He had never been up here before. No, can't say that I do, friend. Not the room, man. The house itself. The Davenport place. Jones answered slowly, trying to gather as much information about the situation as possible. It's been a long, long time, but yes, I remember this place. I bet you do, the voice sneered. Jones waited for a follow-up, but the voice had fallen silent. He took a step closer when he was warned off. That's close enough. The voice was quiet again. Jones waited a 30 count and then asked, Mr. Whoever you are, why am I here? Because you and this piece of filth ruined my life, and I'm going to make you both pay. How did I do that, sir? I've solved a lot of cases over the years. Which one were you? The shadow bristled and said, through obviously tightened jaws, Your first one. Only it wasn't me. It was this guy. He hit the old man with the gun again. Your crowning moment. The start of your hotshot detective career. The books, the shows, the cartoons. Jones cocked his head. I'm sorry. Did you say cartoons? Don't play dumb with me. You know what I'm talking about. Those cartoons with the crime-solving ace and the stupid cowardly sidekick. Jones thought for a second, but was drawing a blank. This guy was insane. He took a small step, turning his body to the left, trying to line up an impossible shot. But he had no choice. This guy had completely lost it. You mean Hong Kong Fui? With the cat? I really don't know what you mean. I mean Scooby-Doo, you jackass! The show where you solve all the crimes and I cower and run away in fear. 
I mean a constant reminder that I panicked and ran away that night. I mean that I couldn't look anyone, especially her, in the face again, and my parents had to leave town, and you, you got the good life, got all the glory and the girls and all the fame. You. And then this guy... The shadow smacked the old man again hard with his pistol. This time, a stream of blood ran from a gash in his forehead. He does less than a year for almost murdering us, and he gets to change his name and go live a nice life on the government dime. While I've had to relive that night over and over again, and when I can finally start to think about putting it behind me, there's that damn dog on the TV making a fool of me. The crazy man with the gun was getting more and more agitated. Jones thought as hard as he could. On the night he'd captured the counterfeiter, there had been two kids his age being held hostage. In the confusion of the fight, one of them had gotten away. The other one, the girl, had helped him subdue the criminal. A few minutes later, a bunch of high school kids had shown up for a party, and Jones and the girl sent them to fetch the cops. The police and the press had shown up and taken everyone's statements, looked around for a while, and then Jones and the girl had been driven home separately to their parents. The next several days were a blur, and then life eventually returned to normal. He'd seen the girl here and there in the halls, and they often smiled or waved at one another, but nothing more than that. The shadow man was yelling now, gesturing with his pistol pointed at the ceiling. Jones saw his chance and took it, firing once through his jacket. The shadow man stopped talking and slowly collapsed to the floor. Jones waited a handful of breaths and then went to help the old man. A gust of wind passed through the old master bedroom, ruffling the ancient sheets and what was left of some curtains hanging on a rod. Neither Jones nor the old man noticed. 1967 In a small diner 2,000 miles away from the Davenport mansion, a man named Joe sat reading a newspaper article. Local teenagers nab counterfeiter in strange case. Hey Ken, get a load of this. This might be something we can use. Ken sipped his coffee and scanned the paper. Local teenagers, abandoned mansion, counterfeiting operation. When police arrived, they removed the suspect's gas mask, revealing him to be none other than Charles Davenport, heir to the massive family fortune. Details are still emerging, and it is still unclear why the prospective multimillionaire would throw it all away over a few five and ten dollar bills. When asked for comment, Mr. Davenport said only, I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those meddling kids. Ken finished the article and his coffee and set a handful of change on the counter. I'll see. Still have that talking dog thing the boss was talking about. Let's get back and put our heads together on that first, okay? You've been listening to The Mansion by William Stewart. Well, listeners, that concludes our show this evening. 
I'd like to thank Valix Books again for allowing us to feature tonight's stories. You can find more tales by these authors and others at velixbooks.com. Also, I want to remind you all that we will be closing out Season 8 of Horror Hill with a full read of the horror classic, The Events at Porath Farm. That will be airing on August 3rd and 10th, and I would be just tickled pink if you all checked it out. Until next time, listeners, stay spooky. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. As for me personally, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username VikingGuitar, and also on Instagram as Viking Guitar Productions. In particular, if you're looking for someone to provide voice work for your own project, or are in need of audio production of any sort, it would be wonderful to chat. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Nikki McSorley and Eric Peabody. Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. 
email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave us a kind comment. Lastly, Don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all of your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.